A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Hi, Chris. Good to talk again. Um, welcome back to The Other Hand listeners. A lot to talk about today, as usual. We've had wholesale price inflation published in Ireland earlier this week, which sends out some interesting messages about what's happening a layer below consumer price inflation. We've had UK inflation data out, which certainly from the perspective of the Bank of England, which is still in rate tightening mode, would not give very much comfort, particularly given what's happening, core inflation. Want to talk about that. And indeed, I think the persistence of inflation generally um, is a topic that warrants quite a bit of discussion, particularly in the context of what the central bank in Iceland has just done, which is to increase interest rates by 125 basis points. We've had um, purchasing managed indices for the UK and the euro area, um, which tell us some interesting things about overall economic activity, but particularly the breakdown between service sector and manufacturing activity. And that, of course, feeds into the inflation narrative again. Um, we've had some interesting data published from a fund manager looking at the dividends that have been paid out by the 1200 biggest companies in the world. Um, I think that's interesting and it tells us a lot about uh, the dynamic between business and the consumer sector at the moment. And something that I came across that I find kind of interesting was data that was published in London about working from home and what's happening there. So a lot to talk about, Chris. Hopefully, uh, we'll get most of it covered in the level of detail we'd like to over the next 30, 35 minutes. But l let's go. Uh, I want to just start by talking about the wholesale price inflation data published in Ireland earlier this week. And um, basically, this looks at the layer of inflation below the consumer. In other words, what producers, manufacturers are selling their products for. Um, wholesale electricity prices um, 
in April fell by 13.5% and that is 42.5% down on a year ago. So we're seeing a dramatic ongoing decline in electricity prices, uh, but of course not being fully passed on to the consumer yet. But I, I suppose as a forward indicator of inflation, this is good news and would suggest that, um, you know, headline inflation at least is going to fall significantly for the consumer over the coming months. Um, the overall energy index down 11.5% during the month, 38% down year on year. Um, I also looked at, there's a component of this report that looks at what's happening in the construction sector. Um, and, you know, we've seen over the last couple of years during COVID and the supply side problems that were created there, but also um, certainly in the early months of the Ukraine crisis, we saw a lot of building material prices increase significantly. So in the year to <clears throat> April, construction materials were up by 11.7%. Within that, concrete up 27.4%, plaster 35.6%. Timber prices are down by over 15%. Um, structural steel fabricated metal up 31.7%. I may be a bit nerdy here by talking about these um, elements of the construction sector and what's happening there on the price front. But the reality, of course, is that all of these costs feed into the cost of delivering a house to the house buyer. And um, we've just seen dramatic inflation over the last couple of years in terms of the cost of building. And that, of course, feeds into the difficulty we've seen on the housing supply side. And we hear developers talking about the lack of viability in delivering certain types of housing at the moment. And and, and this definitely feeds into that narrative. You know, we we have, as I say, seen a significant and pretty dramatic increase in the cost of building houses. Uh, the hope, of course, is that over the next couple of years, um, those construction inflation indicators will move in the right direction. Uh, but we certainly can't be certain at this stage. So that's why, given these cost pressures, given the impact they have for the viability of delivering new housing, um, it's why, you know, government intervention to try and help developers deliver housing supply is really important. Absolutely, Jim. And the fall in those wholesale prices, as you say, it's the intermediary layer of inflation. It's not final inflation, which is what affects all of us in our pockets, is a hopeful sign. And the Bank of England, as you hinted in your introduction, will be looking at these sorts of numbers. They won't be looking specifically at the Irish numbers, of course, but there is a read across generally to commodity price inflation being extremely weak. We've talked about that ourselves. And this is our weekly reminder about the price of natural gas in Europe. This peaked at around 350 euros a megawatt hour last summer in August, September. And this morning it's trading at around 29 euros. So the usual thing, we do this on a weekly basis now, the the price of gas has collapsed. It's not back to where it was on average for the years before the Ukraine invasion, but it's getting closer almost every day now. It comes down a little bit. And there's a couple of things to be said about that. The most obvious one is that our retail prices, the prices that you and I and everybody else are paying for our natural gas and also our electricity, 
have not come down. So that's still a very open question as to whether that's just normal lags in the system or whether somebody is making out like a bandit, particularly the energy supply companies. I have my deep and dark suspicions there. But the interesting thing that's being talked about in Europe is that, uh, and this was a, a, there's a great article, I think, in the FT by Martin Sanbu about this, about how we've gotten it wrong in understanding the causes of that fall in gas supplies. And Martin makes the point that it's more a story about economic flex flexibility. It's more a story about how the German economy in particular responded magnificently to the rise in gas prices. People have got to understand that the reason why the gas price went up was wasn't, wasn't because we put sanctions on Russia, is that Russia put sanctions on us. They cut off the gas supplies. Europe has never sanctioned, at least in the early days, uh, very much of Russia's energy supply. Um, and the German economy responded in the most flexible way that zero economists, or nearly zero economists, they're one, one or two uh, notable exceptions, and they deserve credit for this, said that, yeah, that you know, economic forces combined with uh, flexibility of our economies, and people underestimate that, will mean that there will be substitution and there will be reduction, income and substitution effects to use, leaving certain economics jargon. It's often said, for example, in Germany, that the main reason why they got away with it this winter is because they had a warmer winter. And actually, the data doesn't support that. We might have had a slightly warmer winter in the UK and Ireland, but in Germany, they did not, according to the data in this particular paper. So it's a story of economic flexibility. It's a story about responding in, in ways that are usual usually happen when prices go up. People search for alternative supplies and people overall cut their consumption of energy. And so that leaves us very optimistic about prices going forward. They may well go up again this winter, um, but I think there's a lot more optimism around. And that brings us to electricity prices, the, our other main energy source for our households. Natural gas and energy are, for the most part, what we consume, a little bit of oil. Um, the oil price is also weak, not nearly as weak as the gas price, but certainly it's well below OPEC's target of $100 a barrel. So the energy price story is a good one. Wholesale electricity prices in the UK, for example, like the gas price and not unrelated to the gas price, are falling every day, but our electricity bills aren't. But I think, you know, subject to the, that price gouging comment suspicion I have about the energy companies, we, we can look forward, given those wholesale prices of energy in particular, but um, commodities in general, we can look forward to uh, lower domestic prices going forward. This will come as a great comfort to the Bank of England, who are really struggling with inflation. You mentioned the latest inflation data in the UK at the moment, and there's a couple of things to be said about that. First of all, it did come down, big fall, great, but it didn't come down as much as expected. And core inflation, uh, the thing that the Bank of England is probably most concerned by, because that tells you what's happening underneath the surface, rose to its highest level in 30 years. Um, and, that, and that's a big problem. The, the Bank of England's chief economist is a guy called Hugh Pill, and he's been making very interesting comments about the persistence of UK inflation. And I think there's a, a dotted line rather than a solid line read across to what's happening in Europe generally, including Ireland. And he says that the thing that's taken the Bank of England economics team by surprise is the persistence of inflation. And he said that we got it right in that the components of the initial surge in inflation 
were indeed temporary. That's all that discussion about energy prices. They took the view that the surge in gas and electricity prices at the start of the war in Ukraine would prove temporary. And that has turned out to be the right forecast. Uh, But what they didn't realise was just how much inflation would become embedded, persistent within the system. And that's linked to the other discussion that you and I have had lots of in recent podcasts about tight labour markets. And that's a bit of a mystery. But the thing that really struck me about Hugh Pill's speech that he made recently was he was talking about why he thinks the Bank of England got the persistence of inflation broadly wrong. And that's because all of their economic models are built on data that's now about 30 years worth of numbers. And of course, during those 30 years, inflation has not been a problem. There hasn't been any inflation persistence. So they were using the wrong model. I don't know whether that's a valid excuse. I mean, it's a reason and and a correct reason. But if you're using the wrong model, perhaps you should have understood that when you were actually talking about temporary versus permanent inflation. So I think it was a bit of a mea culpa. Buried within it was an admission that they'd actually make a fundamental analytical modelling mistake in that they were using the wrong model with the wrong data to produce this forecast that inflation would prove temporary and that there wouldn't be any persistence. They've got a lot of persistence right now. It's a real problem. So I think that means that UK interest rates are going up again more than once, um, unless these wholesale prices that you talk about produce a dramatic turnaround very quickly. There is a caveat because I think there is a chance but only a chance that that could happen. But I think the basic idea that interest rates are going to be higher for longer is still very much with us, Jim. And I do think that's a read across to you in Europe as well. I see Christine Lagarde had uh, an article, not saying that exactly, but certainly dropping broad hints in an article in the Irish Times uh, only yesterday or today uh, about precisely these issues. Indeed, Chris. Uh, yeah, I mean, she was basically saying that the European Central Bank would continue to uh, work towards ensuring financial stability in the banking system, but also in getting inflation back under control. And the notion that ECB rates are going to go up another little bit over the coming months and then start to come down later this year into next year does seem fanciful to me, as obviously would be the case in the United Kingdom. I was interested yesterday that the International Monetary Fund revised up its growth forecast for the UK. Um, When it initially published back in April, we commented that of the major economies, the UK was the only one that the IMF was forecasting contraction. Uh, That's now gone. Uh, They had been forecasting contraction of 0.3%. They're now talking about expansion of 0.4%. That okay, that's not dramatic. I mean, 0.4% growth is still very, very feeble. But the point I think is that the UK economy is proving more resilient. And indeed, most economies are still proving more resilient than policymakers and forecasters had expected. And of course, that is feeding into the interest rate and of course, the inflation narrative. Um, You mentioned, you know, the UK, the headline rate has fallen from 10.1% to 8.7%. But the core rate has actually increased from 6.2 to 6.8, which, as you say, is the highest rate of core inflation in over 30 years. And within that um, goods, core goods inflation, 6.6%, up from 5.7% the previous month, and service sector inflation 
up by 6.9% from 6.6% the previous month. So the persistence of inflation is very definitely evident everywhere at the moment. And over the last couple of days, we have been treated to the purchasing managers indices in the UK and in the euro area. Um, I think they those indices tell an interesting story as well. Just to put a context on it, uh, this is a diffusion index, meaning that a reading over 50 means that more firms are expanding than contracting. And a reading under 50 means that more firms are contracting than expanding. Okay, and the composite index for the UK um, it fell from 54.9 to 53.9, a modest easing in activity. But interestingly, within that, service sector has fallen from 55.9 to 55.1. That still signifies a significant level of activity in the services sector, whereas manufacturing, on the other hand, pardon the pun, has fallen from 47.8 to 46.9. And if you look at the euro area, it's a very similar story. The composite index fell from 54.1 to 53.3, still expanding. And within that, service sector has fallen from 56.2 to 55.9. Okay, a modest weakening, but still strong expansion, whereas manufacturing has fallen from 45.8 to 44.6. So service activity, very strong. Manufacturing activity, quite weak. And of course, it is the service sector, the growth that we're seeing there, the labour market problems that are being seen in the service sector, particularly uh, very definitely feeding into this um persistence of inflation narrative that, as you say, the chief economist in the Bank of England is talking about, and indeed other central bankers have been talking about it also. How do you interpret, Chris, the weakness of manufacturing? What's happening? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I think it's got a lot to do with China. I noticed that uh, separately, but relatedly, German exports to China, um, which are all manufacturers, uh, have collapsed, are very, very weak indeed. So I, I think there's two things going on there. One small thing is that the Chinese economic recovery has not been as strong as some people hoped. But more importantly, I think we're seeing this big geopolitical shift. You could label it deglobalization, decoupling, all those bits of jargon. But what the world is essentially doing is reducing its reliance on China. And the Americans are calling it uh, de-risking. Uh, there's all sorts of jargon to do with this. It's to do with geopolitics rather than economics. Uh, but the economic reliance that we have on trade with China, both exports to China, but particularly imports from China, have produced a big sea change, particularly in the United States. 
And in Europe, companies rather than governments have been quick to recognize this. I think governments, um, including in the UK, have been very slow to recognize what is going on in America. And uh, this brings in a discussion about, in Britain at least, all of that stuff around the Brexit debate about global Britain becoming this buccaneering, free trading, Singapore on Thames nation based on old fashioned principles of free trade. You might remember the discussion we had with Noah Smith recently, in which he quite forcefully, and I think quite accurately, pointed out that free trade is something that just isn't talked about in the United States anymore. It's all about friendshoring, uh, making sure that your supply chains are safe. So I think that's a fantastic news story for Ireland, for instance, in that that encourages companies to continue investing in Ireland. It involves bringing manufacturing capabilities back to the United States where they can from China. That's going on. And the last thing the Americans are interested in are notions of free trade. Now, you might think that's a good thing. You might think that's a bad thing. But you might remember during the break, the Brexit discussions, a lot of people, Rishi Sunak, the British prime minister included, proclaimed that the sunny uplands of Brexit would be based on Britain doing all these free trade deals around the world. There are two things to say about that. It was never right on its own terms because it ignored geography, economic geography, in that you're, if you damage trading relationships with your nearest large trading partner, no matter how many free trade deals you do with the rest of the world, you're never going to make up for the difference. But the latest new thing is this stuff that's going on in the United States. They're not interested in free trade deals. They're not interested in free trade deals with the, with the United Kingdom. And the idea that Britain is now going to have some kind of economic rena renaissance on the back of a global free trading system, well, that's for the birds. So on two levels, the whole Brexit argument fails. I do think this is really interesting. I do think governments everywhere in Europe have not recognized this, particularly in the UK. They're still wedded to this idea that Brexit will ultimately drive all these this free trade benefits. Um, but I do think that it has upside for countries like Ireland. But you can actually now start to see this, these big, big geopolitical developments, which we've been very slow to recognize in Europe, starting to affect the data, Jim. Indeed, Chris, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating what's happening in manufacturing. As you say, that very definitely feeds into that uh, deglobalization narrative. Chris, I came across data from a fund manager called James Henderson. It looked at the world's 1,200 biggest companies in the first quarter, and it estimates that those 1,200 companies paid dividends of $327 billion dollars that was 12% up on the first quarter of 2022. It's a new record level for dividends. But interestingly, that it was firms in oil and banking that were the biggest payers. Um, you know, we, we have spoken many times, including in our earlier analysis today, about what's happening on the energy price front and how it's not been passed on to the consumer and the energy companies obviously come out and say, well, listen, we buy a lot of our energy forward and um, it'll take some time for the wholesale price declines to be passed on to the consumer. Uh, but, you know, I've, I have argued, number one, that when prices start to increase, those companies passed on higher prices to the consumer very quickly. And secondly, the profitability of those companies has been growing enormously over the last couple of years. Um, and, I, and I think the fact that energy companies, oil companies particularly, were the biggest 
dividend payers during the first quarter tells us something. But also, if you look at what's happening on the banking scene, and I think Ireland is a very good example, we've seen the European Central Bank increase interest rates significantly over the last, um, well, it's coming up on 12 months, late July, since the ECB started. Um, and most of that has been passed on to varying degrees across the banking sector, what's left of it in this country. But yet deposit rates have been a lot less quickly reflecting those rate increases. So in other words, the net interest margin has increased. This is driving profitability in the banking sector and is driving dividend payments. So basically for the oil and banking companies, uh, they have used the circumstances over the last couple of years to basically um, transfer money from businesses and the consumer to themselves. Yeah, there's all sorts of interesting things contained within that. There's banking, as any other business, has a profit margin. And the profit margin for banks, a very good proxy, or indeed a very good measure of the profit margin, is this thing called the net interest margin. The rate that it charges borrowers, less the rate that it gives depositors, interest on deposit. And that clearly has gone up. And the first thing to say about that is that the extent to which it's gone up, like any profit margin, is going to depend in part, in large part, on how much competition there is in any given industry. The more competition there is in any given business, the lower the margin, the lower the excess over your costs that you can charge a price, because you're always worried about competition. If you're not worried about competition, you can charge whatever price you like. And this is what the banks have done. They've put interest rates up for borrowers, but they haven't, in Ireland in particular, hardly put interest rates up for depositors at all. And to a certain extent, um, that's happened in the UK as well. A second element of this, particularly in the UK, which is uh, some data that I came across only this morning, and I haven't had a chance to dig into it in great detail, but what this new data that somebody has calculated reports to show is related to something that's quite geeky, quite detailed about banking that most people are unaware of, is that when a bank in, in the UK puts money on deposit with the Bank of England, it's surplus cash, if you like, of which there is plenty at the moment, the Bank of England pays interest on those reserves. Now, within the monetary policy community, there's always been a huge debate about whether a central bank should pay interest on reserves. Arguably, sometimes you should actually charge the banks the privilege for parking their money with the central bank. But these new numbers suggest that the amount of money that is being handed over by the central bank, which effectively is the taxpayer, to the high street banks via these interest payments on reserves, deposits held with the Bank of England, amounts to something between 1% and 1.5% of GDP, which is enormous, which is a straight transfer from taxpayers to the banks. And so it helps their profits, just as their profit margin on their regular activities helps their profits. So these banks are making out like bandits. And so the question arises, is public policy geared towards the most in the most appropriate way to dealing with this? I would suggest not. And one of the things I would suggest is that central banks should stop paying interest on reserves. But that would be, I suspect, controversial in, in certain quarters. But at the same time, I've got a, a, one eye on what Christine Lagarde and many other central bankers have been saying about financial stability. 
And one way that you can guarantee the financial stability of the banking system is to guarantee or at least to encourage its its profits upwards because the more profits they're making, the more resilient they are likely to be in the face of any shocks to the system which might be coming down the road via economic weakness or, and all the other things that we've seen going on in places like the United States and Switzerland. So I have a deep and dark suspicion that central banks are actually on the side of financial stability, which is a proxy way of saying, or maybe an epoxy way of saying, they're on the side of increased profitability for the banks at the expense of bank customers in order to guarantee financial stability. It depends where you think vested interests lie. Again, a bit like my suspicion about the energy companies being captured, uh, capturing the regulator, I suspect that the central banks have been willingly captured by the high street banks and are helping them make their profits. It's an interesting trade-off. Um, as you say, promoting banks' profitability is good for financial stability of the banking system. So central bankers are not averse to that. And of course, um, taking money away from the consumer and business indeed does feed into the central bank's objective of trying to get inflation under control by dampening demand. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of stuff going on. But I think it is important to recognise that the profitability we're seeing is very definitely a should be seen for what it is. It's a transfer of resources from the consumer and businesses to those banking and energy companies that we've been talking about. So I think it's important to remember that. Chris, I came across a, another piece of research um, from a research group called the Centre for Cities. It was looking at trends in working from home in London. And it now estimates that in 2023, 2.3 days per week is spent in the office on average by workers in London. This is down from 3.9% pre-COVID. And older workers are the ones that are most likely to be working from home rather than in the office. And the, the argument that this research body makes is that the tightness of the labour market, which is evident everywhere, has given an inordinate amount of power to employees. And they're basically telling employers, um, I work I work from home or I leave. So that there's, there's, there's a power imbalance there that's driving this trend. Um, the Centre for Cities is concerned about this. It's obviously concerned because having more and more workers working remotely is not good for the vibrancy of city centres and City Centre London, I suppose, is the one that's been specifically spoken about here. But also there is a more fundamental issue about what this means for the development of young workers. Uh, for those young workers who actually turn up in the office to work, they, they don't get the guidance from older workers. They don't get the experience. They don't get the coffee dock exchange of information and wisdom. Um, and obviously that has got to feed into productivity. Maybe I'm a dinosaur, Chris, but I just think this working from home model um, is not good. And it's particularly not good for younger workers. I think it's a mixed bag, Jim. I think, as you say, younger workers miss the mentoring. They miss the social side of work. And I, I think going for beers after work is something that people are doing far less of. Um, health campaigners, particularly those in Ireland who wish to put health warnings on alcohol, um, would presumably be pleased by that. But it certainly affects the professional and social development of younger workers, uh, I, I would agree. Um, but at the same time, I think from the whole work-life balance thing, 
particularly for older workers um, who've got fat young families, I think it's a good thing. So I, I, I think it's a, it's a very mixed bag. With the net effects of all of this, we've yet to be able to work out. You mentioned that one of the things that is damaged by working from home is city centre vibrancy. I think that will be corrected in time when an awful lot of offices are repurposed as dwellings and they're converted into flats and townhouses, which I think is, is beginning to start in certain jurisdictions. And I think policy can be a big, big, play a big role here. And I, I do think that policy needs to be proactive in encouraging the conversion of unwanted office buildings into residential dwellings. So I, I think the jury's out on what the net effects of all of this are going to be. But it does mean that the working environment has changed. For choice, if you pin me to the wall and say, which way is this going to go? I would, as I say, acknowledge the lack of mentoring, the lack of social activity. But I think going into a, you know, a, a steel and glass tower every day, sitting at a desk and doing the kind of corporate life things that we've all had to do, Jim. I, if I was starting my career again, I'd take your hand off for working from home. And I would try to achieve the balance in my life by seeking out the mentoring, because obviously this is something that you can achieve yourself um, if you are proactive about it, and create your own social life. So I would say the onus on the individual to fill in these gaps is very much there, but I think the tools for filling in the gaps are also there. So I think net net working from home is a positive. I think the, you know the days of sitting for ten hours a day, five days a week in uh, air conditioned cubicles in these pretty soulless steel and glass towers, I think thankfully are coming to an end. Chris, when when we worked together, um, I was obviously much much more junior than you, but I remember very frequently dropping into your office to look for advice, to talk about stuff, to show me how to do things, etc. Um, and indeed, in the dealing room in Bank of Ireland, where we worked at the time, the interaction with the people working in there was really, really important. I, I certainly, if I was back there again, I would be quite happy to continue to go into the office to work. Um, for the last 15 years or thereabouts, I have worked from home, given the nature of what I do now. And I think you need to look at what has happened my social skills over that period uh, just to gauge the impact it has on people working from home. Well, some would argue, Jim, that your social skills weren't that great to begin with, so there wasn't much... Okay, uh, okay, thanks, cap- Chris. Yeah, thank cap- you. Cap- capital stock to depreciate there. Um, but, yeah, I too have been working from home for years now, pre-pandemic, and um, I'm very grateful for the tools, the technology, the luck, chance and circumstance that have led me at you know this late stage of my working life to do to do what I do so I I have no complaints about it whatsoever I think if people think they are missing mentoring then they should go and seek it out and I think it is possible to do that technology allows you to do that and you just pick up the phone the old-fashioned way or you actually say to somebody you know in somebody senior in the office I'd like to to meet you for coffee. Um, you can you can do that from home as much as you can do that from the office. It's easier one way than the other. I grant you, dropping into other people's offices um, is one thing. But of course, you dropping into my office continuously asking me these questions, Jim. I can remember that completely wrecked my productivity. It, <laughs> it, may, it may have it, it may have enhanced yours, but it didn't do much for mine. Thanks, Chris. Listen, we'll wrap it there. I I didn't mention Leinster Rugby. You did a podcast with Nathan on that. Uh, But all all I can say is that as a monster person, um, I had very mixed feelings on Saturday afternoon. 
And uh, yeah, that, that that kind of I think that kind of tribalism is a shame, Jim. I think that all Irish people should have been supporting Leinster, to be honest. Yeah, and but La, thank- La, La Rochelle has such a strong Munster influence. You know, sporting icons like Donica Ryan and Rog, you know, bloody hell. Yeah, I know, I know. It's 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 definitely a thing, and I, I grant you that. And I understand your ambivalence. And Chris, the final thing I would say, it's a call out to a school that reached out to us, um, Rice College in Westport, the economics class and their economics teacher, Colin McConway. Uh, they're finishing their classes this week prior to the Leaving Cert economics class. So uh, they're big fans of the other hand and their teacher, Colin, is. So uh, just like to wish him the very best of luck in their upcoming economics exam and I hope that the other hand will enable them address the current topics issue in economics exam uh, to a great extent. Here, here, Absolutely. Second that, Jim. Okay. Speak to you next talk, time. Talk to you. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market